Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Today we meet Joe Wardensky, a civil rights attorney with a special focus on trans students' rights and LGBTQ equity. Joe told us about his years as a DOJ prosecutor and about how he managed the transition to solo practice when he decided to hang out his own shingle. Sometimes I, I, I miss uh, being able to uh, rely on other people's decision making. I think the biggest growth uh, professionally for me has been whatever the decision is, it's mine. And that can be really scary. Joe also shared how he found his way into the trenches battling for equity on behalf of trans youth. What motivates me to do this work is to at least use their cases as a way to build better policies and practices, better understanding among maybe well-meaning teachers and administrators who just didn't know what the right thing to do was. Joe has had a share of headline-making cases, but he focuses just as much on the cases without flash and the impact that everyday justice can make on a large scale. If we keep fighting and people keep living their authentic selves and telling their stories to their friends and their family, and we're not necessarily the courts that will push change. Please take note, this episode contains discussion of transphobia as well as suicide. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's your host, Gregory Binstock. Welcome to This Lawyer's Life a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. I'm Gregory Binstock, Director of Professional Development here at the New York City Bar Association, and today I have the pleasure to chat with Joe Wardensky. Joe Wardensky, you're the founder and principal attorney of your own civil rights law practice, Wardensky Law. You've been a civil rights practitioner for over 17 years, working as a trial attorney with the Department of Justice, working at the New York State Attorney General's office, and as well in private practice. And now, you're here with us. Welcome, Joe. We're so glad to have you join us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Joe, it seems like you've been committed to civil rights litigation from the beginning of your career. Can you give us a sense of what shaped your entry into this field? Yeah. So I, I think I, from a very young age, was sort of instinctively interested in social justice and in particular public education and the rights of students. I grew up in South Jersey. My mom was a public school art teacher. Uh, my dad was a commercial fisherman. And, and I think I realized pretty early the power of public schools and uh, good teachers and the, the way that schools, um, when everyone can uh, attend in a, you know, safe and non-discriminatory environment where teachers believe in you, um, is really a driver of opportunity and a fundamental part of our democracy. And so that was something that I think I, I felt very early. And when I got to college, I studied public policy, focused on education policy and really from a civil rights perspective. And through that, I, I think became more interested in education, both as a, an issue that I cared about personally, but also as a that's something that I want to, wanted to work on in my career, whether through the sort of policy lens or through, through law. After uh, college, I worked for just over two years at a nonprofit organization here in New York called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, which was a nonprofit organization that was the plaintiff in the landmark constitutional challenge to the New York State school funding formula that was chronically underfunding uh, New York City public schools and other uh, urban uh, public school districts in the state. Um, and I had the opportunity to work um, 
as a recent college grad uh, on public engagement and outreach and research around that case and around education funding and uh, the value of education more broadly. Um, and during the two years that I was there, uh, the case went up through both rounds of appeal. And really on my last day of work, as I was about to go off to, to law school, the state court of appeals ruled that the, the state school funding formula was unconstitutional because it denied a sound basic education to public school students in, in New York. And as it turns out, that exact same day, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its famous decision in Lawrence versus Texas, which struck down sodomy bans in Texas and other states that still had them that criminalized gay people for existing. And I was working in an organization that had just achieved this major victory. The Supreme Court also that same day had issued a really historic decision that has sort of changed the path of LGBTQ rights over the last 20 years. And if I hadn't already realized it, I realized that this is what I want to do, right? That creative, passionate lawyers can use the courts as a tool to make the world a better place. And that drove me through law school and beyond to uh, go down the, the career path that I have. So we're talking about LGBTQ rights. You're a recognized leader in that form of litigation in a variety of fashions. What helped shape your passion in that area? Part of it is personal. As a gay person, it's an issue that uh, I care very much about personally. Uh, professionally, I think I became, I, I started to work on LGBTQ rights issues and LGBTQ student rights issues in particular, uh, as sort of an outgrowth of my work in the education non-discrimination space. After law school, I worked for two years at a big law firm in New York. Um, and after that, I went in 2010 to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division in D.C., where I worked in the educational opportunities section of the division for almost six years. And as a young attorney at the beginning of the Obama administration, where the federal government was really taking a keen interest for the first time in a while in enforcing federal civil rights protections, it was a really exciting time to be there and to grow as a lawyer. I was working on school desegregation cases in the South, cases involving students with disabilities and race discrimination issues. But in that first year that I was there, the rights of LGBTQ students at school, especially the right not to be harassed because of who you are, had taken sort of center stage on a national level. There had been tragically a few high profile student suicides that year of LGBTQ students who had faced pretty vicious harassment from classmates and, and teachers in different places across the country. One of those was a boy named Seth Walsh, who was an eighth grader in a town called Tehachapi in California. It's a rural community and in Kern County, California. And Seth died after three plus years of pretty intense, cruel bullying and harassment, verbal and physical targeting him both because he was not conforming to male gender stereotypes and eventually after he came out as gay for his sexual orientation as well. And the school's response, if anything, made things worse, not better. They didn't step in. They, they made things worse and they ignored what was happening uh, to the point where it became too late. I, I was assigned to be on a case team of uh, DOJ uh, attorneys, uh, uh, two of us, and uh, attorneys from the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, 
um, to investigate that case um, and resolve it. And and I think it was the first, if not one of the first uh, cases where the federal government enforced Title IX, the law that prohibits sex discrimination in, in schools uh, on behalf of an openly gay student saying that harassing students um, because of their sexual orientation or their not conformity to you know gender stereotypes is itself a, a violation of federal law. And so it was really, that was my, the, the first big Q rights case that I worked on. And from there became involved in other works that the Civil Rights Division was doing. About a year later, we worked on a, a case involving the Arcadia School District in California. It was a, uh, the first case ever that the, the federal government had um, done on behalf of a transgender student. The, the student was a, a middle school trans boy. Um, he uh, had uh, transitioned in you know, relatively early childhood, had been living as a boy uh, in all respects for many years. But the school was refusing to uh, respect the fact that he was a boy in multiple ways, including bathroom access, sometimes name usage. It came to a head when there was a uh, a camp for uh, kids in his grade early in the fall, I think of his seventh grade year. And they forced the school forced him to stay in a cabin all by himself instead of with any of his other uh, classmates who were all staying in, in, in groups. So we investigated that case. Uh, we resolved it. The, the resolution agreement was basically treat him as a boy in all respects for the rest of his time in school. And that seems like a very simple proposition. It, it still does to me, but unfortunately, uh, we are still fighting those fights. And what was powerful about that to me was just being able early in my career to be part of enforcing existing federal civil rights protections for a group of students who had been largely ignored uh, until that point was uh, super meaningful for me. And, and uh, and it set the path for me to continue to work on those issues, trans students' rights and uh, LGBTQ rights more generally now for the next 10 years is a really core fundamental part of my civil rights practice. I want to ask you as an attorney what it's like and how it shapes your professional development when you both represent one individual, one boy, and the federal government. I think a lot of folks see these cases on the news and they understand in some way or shape or form the public policy aspect. But what's it like for you as an attorney with the real client at the end of the day, having to shape that relationship? What is it like for you as a human being? Yeah, I think that my answer to that question would probably vary over the course of my career. When I was at DOJ, we were representing the United States and there was a there was one student at the heart of this case, but he wasn't our client per se, right? But we were uh, trying to enforce the laws in a way that would establish principles for, you know, other schools to follow. And after that case resolved, the, the New York Times wrote uh, an editorial that said that the agreement should be required reading for school officials at all levels nationally, and also wrote that it may also be the beginning of a more welcoming future for transgender students. I think we've seen a few ups and downs over the last almost 11 years since then. But I, I think it showed to me that the power of one student's bravery and one family's bravery and stepping forward and demanding uh, their rights and finding, in that case, a government agency and administration that agreed and was willing to also, I think, show courage. This was a, a new 
relatively undeveloped issue. There was no real good case law one way or the other at that point. There was some that was starting to apply protections to trans employees in the Title VII context, but we were breaking new ground, right? And it required, I think, a lot of a lot of courage. And I give the family so much credit for putting themselves out there, right? I think as I've moved into a more private practice and a more client-centered practice, that first principles are that your your client is the, the case, right? I can hope and I think I've achieved in uh, individual cases broader impact, but the, the, the thing that is at the heart of every case is a life, is a student or someone who's experienced discrimination or someone who's been denied healthcare. And I can help tell their story to a court or as an advocate, as part of the effort to achieve a just legal result for them. But that will not always be a big impact case, right? Or big precedent setting decision. Sometimes it can be a settlement that you never hear about or a case that ends before it makes all the flashy headlines because the goal is to improve lives. And I've come to realize, and part of why I decided to do this work in private practice is that there's a real value for having and a need for attorneys to enforce civil rights protections for individuals, right? That there is such an important value of having impact cases and impact litigators and breaking new areas of the law, establishing uh, precedent and so forth. But where these laws have, I think, their highest value is once those big victories have been obtained, there are hundreds and thousands of people, kids, pe people who are facing housing discrimination, whatever, who need the law enforced for them, right? And they don't necessarily need to be at the heart of a high-profile case that makes the New York Times what they want is justice and the ability to go to school or get healthcare. And, and that really drives me now because I, I feel like that is in the public interest space, something that you don't all often think about litigation as a tool to vindicate individual people's rights, but it's such a necessary part of our society and our practice. And, I, and I'm really glad to be able to play a role in that. Was that the main driving force? I know you've been in public practice, okay. private practice, public practice, private practice. Yep. How has that been part of your career arc? And is that one of the main shifts that you made that you wanted to see more of an impact on the individual and executing something for their everyday lives and answers? I, I think so. So after DOJ, I spent just over four years at a plan of side civil rights firm in DC called Roman Colfax, where it was a much more litigation oriented job than my role at DOJ, which was doing some litigation, some enforcement, a lot of investigations. But going into a trial litigation practice, working on a sort of variety of issues, including a lot of fair housing cases, some students' rights cases, healthcare discrimination cases, fair lending work, showed me the sort of, that I really like litigation as a tool that I really, the client-focused litigation, whether that client's a person or a nonprofit organization that is advocating for others' rights. And I moved back to New York in spring of 2020, which was less than ideal timing, but I, I worked at the New York AG's office litigating challenges to uh, Trump administration regulations in several contexts, including Title IX, healthcare non-discrimination under the ACA and some, some other cases. And I realized in that job that that was so far removed from the, um, the lives of individual people, even though the work was like critically important, that what I really missed and liked was that contact with clients and being able to establish relationships and see a case through 
um, and be able to be a storyteller and, and be able to um, advocate by um, working closely with someone to convince a court or, or convince an administrative agency that their story was worthwhile and their rights had been violated. So when, when the time came for me to sort of figure out what was next, I saw a need for more private civil rights firms that were focusing on the, the things that I care most about, LGBTQ rights, students' rights, that there's a fair number of plaintiff-side firms that do employment discrimination or fair housing work or labor work, but very few firms that had at the heart of their practice education and LGBTQ rights and, and democracy. So I decided to create that. And I was lucky enough to get two sort of short-term consulting projects that gave me the, the push into trying this out and dipping my toe in to seeing if working for myself was something I'd actually enjoy. And two and a half years later, it, it stuck. And I decided early on to grow it into a, a firm to uh, start taking on more and more uh, clients on a contingency basis and building a, a docket of work that does focus on those core areas that are the reason why I started the practice to begin with. And what's it like as an attorney to be your own boss? I... I, I I actually enjoy it quite a lot. Sometimes I, I, I miss uh, being able to uh, rely on other people's decision making. I think the biggest growth uh, professionally for me has been whatever the decision is, it's mine. And that can be really scary, right? I, I think it's been going okay so far, but that was the, the biggest transition. I also miss having colleagues. Very early on, I decided to start hiring law students as law clerks. One, because I wanted to be in a work environment where we were collaborating and where I had uh, co-workers and basically every semester in uh, summer uh, since then I've had one or two law students working with me. I was able to hire a full-time uh, recent law grad as a fellow uh, for this year and so we're growing slowly but I, I really enjoy the small environment and being able to both teach and learn from, from my colleagues. And, and, a, and a big part of my practice is to partner as co-counsel with civil rights organizations, other point of side attorneys. And so I feel like even though I don't necessarily have an office suite full of 20 or 50 colleagues, that I'm always working closely with, with people who share my values or my coworkers in a different way than it might have been in, in past jobs. You talked about working with plenty of students and now you've hired one of them. Do you have any navigating principles to share or any sort of overarching themes about how you approach mentorship? Part of what I said before was that I view my uh, interns and well as full colleagues and my team. And I try to, you know, forecast that from the interview process on forward where this is going to be uh, a great experience because you're going to be doing, we're all going to be doing all the things uh, together. And so a lot of my style is just including my team, whether it's like going argument at the second circuit or shadowing me and or that sort of thing <laughs> to get a broad exposure to what a litigation practice looks like which one month might be just cases that are not in court right another month might be depositions and discovery but relying on my staff to be a full member of the team and i, and I think that's sort of the, the rapport that we establish with each other by being in a small office and just to bring on people who are excited about the work and want to learn and and engage in those conversations multiple times a day about what's going on and learning that way in addition to, you know, the more, the more formal feedback sometimes, but usually I think it's the learning by doing. I wanted to ask you as a small law firm owner, how do you decide how many staffers you need and at what levels? 
I see you have an of counsel attorney, a law clerk, and a fellow, which you were describing. How do you figure out how to build out your office and and your needs in that level? You you probably have some administrative staff that's not on your website. How do you figure that out? I don't have any administrative staff. Okay. Part of the exercise is to to do and be willing to do, I think, all the things. I a lot of it is just uh, contingent on resources. I usually have uh, some paying cases and some contingency cases, and my ability to you know hire interns initially was just making sure I had enough resources to make that happen. I brought on a, a former colleague as a part-time of counsel to help me on some cases. And it's nice to have another more senior lawyer to at least have as uh, someone else who knows how civil rights practice works and knows how litigation works. And my ability to bring on my fellow was the direct result of a, a big settlement, my firm's first big settlement in a case called uh, Shelby versus Huntsville Board of Education. Uh, we co-counseled with um, public justice, a nonprofit that does student civil rights work um, and representing the family of Nigel Shelby, who was a uh, black gay ninth grader in Huntsville, Alabama, who um, died by suicide after sexual orientation, harassment, and fairly racist response by the school principal from whom he sought help. We ended up settling that case last spring, getting the school district to agree uh, to a host of non-monetary changes, including, and I think this is remarkable for an Alabama school district in 2023, to agree to expressly write in sexual orientation and gender identity into their non-discrimination policy, but also uh, resulting in a monetary settlement to the, the family. And because of that, I was able to keep on one of my spring interns, Allie, and bring her on as a fellow. She's from Alabama and has a connection to that place and to that work. And it meant a lot to me to be able to name that fellowship um, after Nigel. So she's the Nigel Shelby Civil Rights Fellow. Whether I can you know, do that every year, I think remains to be seen. The, the friends are work in progress, but it, it was a really wonderful outcome for me of that case to be able to expand my team so we can do more of that work. So you mentioned ways to think about settlement agreements and non-monetary compensation. Tell me a little bit more, if you would, about how you think about restorative justice for your clients and all the ways that rewriting some of the rules, as you mentioned, are part of the bigger thinking for justice on the larger scale that it yeah. goes beyond. I mean, money's important, but that goes beyond money. Yeah. And, and I think that because my civil rights practice started as a DOJ attorney, where we weren't thinking about the money aspect at all, right? That wasn't mm -hmm. part of our toolbox. We were you know, working with school districts to fundamentally adopt, you know, policies and practices that would make their schools a safer and more inclusive place for students who were uh, gay or trans or from immigrant families or whatever the case may be. So that is still how I think as a lawyer and want in every case where I can to negotiate non-monetary changes, which can be something as small as in a fair housing case of a landlord discriminated against, in one of my cases, a, a couple because they were about to have a baby, to go through, go to a fair housing training and understand why that was not lawful and, and not okay, to working with uh, schools to adopt changes that might actually improve um, the lives of other students. Like a, a lot of the cases that I've talked about have been where the, the student whose case it is, it's too late, right? And the, what motivates me to do this work is to at least use their cases as a way to build 
better policies and practices, better understanding among maybe well-meaning teachers and administrators who just didn't know what the right thing to do was or needed some, some training on how to respond to bullying in their classrooms and make that a, a way to protect other students front on the front end so that we, you know, don't have the, the most tragic cases and that the, that school can nip these issues in the bud before they become federal civil rights lawsuits. Let's turn for a second to your relationship with the City Bar. I think we got your name from some leadership at the City Bar Justice Center. Have you been involved with uh, some of their projects? Yeah, I worked with the Pro Se Legal Project of the, the City Bar Justice Center, which works with Pro Se clients in the Eastern District of New York. Have talked to a few clients about their cases and working through their issues and also have helped the the leaders of that project sort of brainstorm on areas of the law that I know a little bit about fair housing and, and protection for students to help, you know, them educate and work with clients who are bringing cases in those areas on their own. Excellent. I also wanted to ask you, I see that you have a master's in public policy, which we discussed a little bit, and I believe you earned it the same year as your JD. So I wanted to ask, you know, how you decided to pursue like the joint degree in the first place and, and how you, we've discussed a little bit of how you put it to use, but just how those things work in symbiosis. And also help me understand if the JD was at Northwestern and the master is at Harvard, are you gaming the, the time space continuum or how, how does this happen? Good questions all. So I, it was a joint degree and Northwestern and the Kennedy School at Harvard had an arrangement where uh -huh. you could do a joint JD uh, MP at the two schools. The Kennedy School has those joint programs with a lot of uh, law schools and Northwestern was one. So I did two and a half years of law school and one and a half years of the, the policy degree um, with, you know, basically one semester of each counting towards the other. So I finished both in four years, but I was not in two places at, at once, although sometimes it felt like it. And I, my interest in that, I think was very much, even after I realized that litigation was the tool and the, and the path that I was going to go down, that the, the the topics and the issues that I cared about and the, the types of litigation that I wanted to work on were very much at that crossroads between law and, and policy. And, and I certainly in my second year of law school was craving, I think, more coursework and more opportunities to think more deeply about civil rights issues generally, and certainly on things that I wanted to work on education and LGBT rights, which my law school, there were some course offerings along those lines, but not a lot. And I was excited to have the opportunity to go and learn, learn some of these same issues, but through a more focused policy lens. And I think that is just, it's how I think. So I'm not, I don't know, I can always point to which one helped me in, in which part of my career, but I think I approach, approach my work and certainly the issues that I care about and thinking about them through a policy informed lens. I wanted to ask you about client interviewing. You have folks that are in the contingency space and you have to think about fairly quickly and fairly carefully if this is going to be something that you can take on is going to be worth your time and going to reap yep. benefits for you and your client. I wanted to ask how you think about that in the brief time you have with them. In my limited experience, I know there's a lot of folks that are wronged in very slight ways that think that an attorney is a good idea for them and the reality is they may not have a proper case. Obviously, on the other side of the coin, there's people that suffer a great deal and don't have access to legal help and everything in between. 
But, you know, in this day and age, a lot of people are looking for help and get it in all different ways. But I guess my question is, how do you carefully think about how to interview a client in a way that's going to be useful for both you and the client and for you to think about the realities of the financial aspects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that is something, a, a, a formula or a process I haven't, you know, quite perfected yet. I'm not, I'm not sure that you can, but, um, and certainly, uh, you know, a question I've been thinking about and asking myself a lot, you know, over, over the last year, as I, um, really opened up the, the possibility of taking on more than one, uh, contingency case at a time. And one way that I get individual clients or, or cases is through referrals from other organizations, fair housing organizations that have vetted or worked up a case or assisted a client in an administrative proceeding that, you know, where the client now wants to go to pursue their claims in court through referral, uh, nonprofits that, uh, have hotlines and do referrals out. So I've gotten, uh, clients that way. And I, I think at this sort of early stage of the firm, I, you know, prefer cases that come to me that have been a, at least a little bit vetted by someone else, because you're right that I've gotten contacted by more, more sort of cold calls and you know, people call, cold calling the firm than, than I had. And it's really difficult to assess quickly whether there is a case and what the client might know in their heart to be a uh, discrimination or a civil rights violation is provable in court, right? As a civil rights violation. And so part of what, what I've been working on over the last year is trying to figure out both how to manage that process. And part of it is to sort of limit how many cold call type intakes I can do just recognizing that I'm one person, <laughs> but also try to get as much information as I can from someone early on. Sometimes building in a, a short investigation retainer where I take a couple of weeks to get all their documents and they, they have and sit down with them either in person or over Zoom and learn as much as I can to get more information about whether uh, a case is viable. Part of the, the skill that I'm refining and I think probably will be for a long time is how to say no, right? Because so many people have needs, so many people are experiencing discrimination in various ways, overt and sometimes more subtle. And I certainly can and, and wouldn't serve anyone well, including myself, by uh, doing them all or taking on cases that would not result in uh, a win or you know, the prospect of fees at, at the end of the case, which is something I'd have to consider. And what I'm trying to do and working in conversations with my team, right, is what kinds of cases are going to excite us? What kinds of cases do we want to work on? Does this case sort of fit into the, the core mission areas? And if not, um, can we help this person find a lawyer, whether it's in their state? Because I do get a fair number of out-of-state calls, someone who's more local or someone who is has more experience on that those particular kind of issues. I don't like to say no and leave people in the lurch, and but but it is challenging, right? And if anyone else has sort of figured out how to do a perfect case intake, I'm all ears. But I think that has been one of the more challenging parts of doing this on my own. So one of the areas of concern that you have that we haven't really touched on is voting rights. So I'd be loath to not ask you now that we're well into 2024. What do you want the public to know, our listeners to know, now that we are in a major election year about voting rights? And, and where we are at the state of affairs now that we're in such an important voting year. 
Yeah, obviously the the stakes of the upcoming presidential election uh, couldn't be higher. And if we've learned anything from the last two, probably more presidential elections and, and others, it's just how razor thin the difference is between one candidate or another. And I think just drives into focus how much every single vote counts. I've been interested in voting rights as a civil rights issue for a long time. I had the opportunity to eat and law school to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund one summer in 2006 when the Voting Rights Act was getting reauthorized. And since starting my firm, I have had the chance to work as a consulting attorney to two voting rights organizations and helping them litigate voting rights challenges in South Dakota and Georgia. The one case that I spent the most time in was a case where I, I partnered with Demos, a voting rights organization, and the Native American Rights Fund in representing several South Dakota tribes and challenging the state of South Dakota's failure to comply with the National Voter Registration Act. And that statute, which is more commonly known as the Motor Voter Law, requires states to automatically register people to vote when they apply for a driver's license, renew their license, or apply for social service benefits. And Demos and the Native American Rights Fund had done an investigation and found pretty systemic non-compliance by the state in offering the right to vote and processing and sending applications to be to be processed. And there had been quite a lot of voters who didn't realize until they got to their polling place on election day that they had never actually registered to vote if they thought they had. So I came in as a consultant with Demos. They had some capacity needs uh, and they needed a senior litigator with some subject matter background to come in and help uh, run this case. And so that was my first big case in this farm. And we went through pretty extensive discovery. Uh, actually won summary judgment in our favor. The district judge found that the state had violated the NBRA in, in, in a lot of ways. And we negotiated a comprehensive multi-year settlement agreement to both bring the state into compliance and ensure that it, it, it stayed there. And I think the NBRA is a statute that not a lot of people know about. It's been around for about 30 uh, years now, but what's great about it and, and, and its real value is that it's finding people where they are and making it easy to register, right? And something as basic as that, just being able to register to vote is so important when you know that every single vote counts. And so it was really a pleasure to work on, on that case. And I, and I hope I get to do more. You mentioned you were able to sort of dip your toes into the space that you're in right now with some consulting projects. Were those part of your plan to eventually go out on your own? Were you able to create those opportunities for yourself or did they just sort of come along at the right time? I, I think it was the impetus to allow me to go out on my own. It was, you know, whether to stay in my previous job at the New York AG's office to go out on my own or to do something else altogether was, you know, had been top of mind for a little while. And these two opportunities landed in my lap right around the same time. One was the Demos case in South Dakota that I just mentioned. And the other was a non-litigation project working with a national education organization that was building a coalition that summer, the summer of 2021, to respond to the growing push to ban teaching about race and the so-called critical race theory, uh, I, I would say hysteria that summer. And so helping this broader coalition understand where the law and civil rights litigation could fit into a broader advocacy strategy. And I sort of kept that model of having 
some paid consulting work and over time building out more of a contingency practice that is made possible by the fact that I have some paid projects at any given time. Some are like the demos case, you know, working as sort of an outside co-counsel uh, for groups that uh, need someone either with litigation experience or subject matter expertise or both. And some are working with nonprofits who don't litigate, but understanding how the law and civil rights litigation affects broader policy advocacy strategies on uh, various issues, including things like voting rights and students' rights and, and healthcare. I wanted to ask, is there an under-litigated area of discrimination in terms of something that if the lay attorney isn't thinking about that we'll see sort of a wave in the next five to 10 years in an area of discrimination that the public is not necessarily as attuned to at the moment? I think that there is still a widespread misperception that in places where there are no state or local protections for LGBTQ people, that there are no protections. And that's an issue I faced at DOJ. It's an issue that I faced in, in a lot of the cases that I worked on where the federal laws that prohibit discrimination in employment and in education and in housing on the basis of sex. Now, after the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock a couple of years ago, protect LGBTQ people from discrimination based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And I still hear reporting, see reporting, or hear even advocates talk about if state doesn't have express protections for sexual orientation, that those protections don't exist. And what that means is that state doesn't have those protections and that the federal courts in that jurisdiction may or may not have litigate, you know, approached that issue before, but that there is a lot more opportunity if someone's facing discrimination in housing because they're gay or trans, for example, there have been very few cases, fair housing cases involving LGBTQ discrimination. I think that it's unquestionable to me that the Federal Fair Housing Act protects LGBTQ people. And I would expect that there's going to be more litigation on that as, as just one example in the, in the years to come. Joe, back in the good old days when things were on the up and up and there were lots of expansion of civil rights, did you ever think that in the future things could go back in a different direction? I mean, Roe being an obvious one, but like, did it ever occur to you that Obviously, times change, political avenues change, the Supreme Court changes. But just looking at it from a 10,000-foot perspective, how do you see and how do you think the public should think about civil rights movements moving forward and backwards? I think a lot of us are living this in real time right now. And, you know, for I'm 45, people my age or younger, I think we have only been adults, you know, until the last couple of years when rights were expanding, right? And it seemed right. like the world was becoming, you know, more accepting generally. And that just changed 180 in the last couple of years. And so the types of rhetoric, the types of hate, the types of anti-Black, anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant, dialogue that has become seemingly acceptable to some degree on a national level is shocking, right? But I don't think it's the end of the story, right? And and I and as a civil rights lawyer, I, I can't believe that, right? Because there have been ups and downs. And even the first 20 years of the you know, first 15 or 20 years of the 21st century were a time of growth. There's always been a push and pull and you don't have to go that much further back to see that there are things that felt like lost causes weren't anymore. I talked about when I started law school, Lawrence versus Texas had just been decided. But a year later, 2004, was when states across the country in the 2004 election were passing 
these mini DOMA laws prohibiting in their state constitutions same-sex marriage, right? And it felt like the we were going over a cliff, right? Sort of, I mean, it sort of felt in a lot of ways how we do, how we feel right now about where rights are going. And it didn't take long and it didn't take so many years before that reversed. And I don't know that in 2004, we would have predicted that marriage equality would have been the law of the land but just a few years later. And so these setbacks, I think, have to be and are, you know, temporary, right? And that our job, my job as a civil rights lawyer is to use the tools that are available um, to continue to push to make that change. One case, one of my, you know, biggest and most important cases I didn't mention uh, yet was Whitaker versus Kenosha School District. So when I was at Relman, because of the work on trans students that I had done at DOJ, the Transgender Law Center asked me if we wanted to co-counsel on this trans student case representing a high school student, Ash Whitaker, a trans boy in Kenosha, Wisconsin, whose school was banning him from the boys' bathrooms, making, proposing that he potentially have to wear a green wristband so they could monitor his bathroom use. We're actually logging um, when he went into and out of the, the bathrooms. Initially, when it let him run for a uh, junior prom king, just a, a host of things that were were pretty bad. And we, you know, brought a federal lawsuit in uh, 2016, uh, got before his senior year or at the beginning of his senior year, a preliminary injunction, allowing him to use boys restrooms for the, the rest of that year. It went to the seventh circuit. Uh, I had the honor of being able to argue that case before the seventh circuit with his mom in the room and a panel of judges who got it, understood why this was discrimination and unnecessary and singling out a student for mistreatment in a way that was only harming him <laughs> and not helping any, anyone else. And we saw in, in the, after winning that appeal, the decision came out just a few days before he graduated. And it really was just a wonderful graduation gift that we were able to give him his senior year back and, and allow him to be the boy that he is without having to think about a lawsuit every day. But that was a really optimistic moment, right? It was 2017. It seemed like what might have been a controversial issue was not taking hold as a truly controversial issue. It took maybe six more years for that to happen, but it shows that the world can understand these issues. And I think does understand these issues more than the public dialogue around it might suggest. And that it gives me optimism that if we keep fighting and people keep living their authentic selves and telling their stories to their friends and their family, and we're not necessarily the courts that will push change, but it, it's not going to be immediate or linear. Such an important point for all lawyers to keep in mind and hold close at heart in these interesting times. Joe Wardensky, thank you so much for joining us on This Lawyer's Life. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Lawyer's Life. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. Be sure to check out Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.
Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to This Lawyer's Life. We are already planning more conversations with successful lawyers, and we want your help. If you have burning questions about professional development, share them with us by sending an email to thislawyerslife at nycbar.org. And don't forget to subscribe to This Lawyer's Life wherever you listen to podcasts.